You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. He worked for me for a very short period of time, but you know what? He happens to be a very good person. And I think it's very sad what they've done to Paul Manafort. Alternative take, it is both richly deserved and kind of hilarious. President Donald Trump attempts to brazen out the apparently unbrazenable outable. My guests Robin Lustig and Jacob Parakilis will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Australia's ongoing political circular firing squad, what Americans think of foreign leaders, or at least of those of whom they have heard, and a rewriting of Brussels street map. Which thoroughfare would you rename? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Robin Lustig, the journalist and broadcaster, former presenter of The World Tonight on BBC Radio 4, and Jacob Parakilis, deputy head of the US and the Americas programme at Chatham House. Welcome both. And we will start tonight, of course, in the United States, where any normal president might today be contemplating his resignation. And where were, what were, rather, Donald Trump not president, he might be under arrest. Yesterday, his longtime attorney, fixer and bagman, Michael Cohen, accused President Trump in court and under oath of violating campaign finance laws, a charge levelled as Cohen pleaded guilty to several counts of tax fraud. At roughly the same time, Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was being convicted of eight counts of fraud. He faces up to 80 years in prison. It was all in all one of those days on which electing a real estate spiv turned game show host as president didn't seem like one of America's brighter ideas. Um, Jacob, we have asked this question any number of times before. But is this maybe the beginning of the end? It's certainly past the end of the beginning. <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to make any uh, particular predictions. Um, I think, frankly, absent some completely sh- – and this is, this is – I mean, to be clear, that yesterday was – probably the worst day in Donald Trump's presidency. Um, and one that's of the a, that's worst... A, that's a high bar. It's a very high bar, but I think I think yesterday cleared it. I mean, the, the double whammy of Cohen and Manafort. Uh, and it has to be said, as a product of two completely separate investigations with several other civil suits and other investigations kind of waiting in the wings, um, the, the, the amount of legal challenge to Trump really can't be overstated. And yesterday just really highlighted that. Um, but... Until November, he is still relatively shielded. And it may be, depending on how November's elections go, that he will be shielded even after that. The key thing is whether the Democrats take back the House of Representatives because when if they do, they uh, will have not only the ability to stop his legislative agenda but also subpoena power. They will have investigatory power that so far they've been denied and the Republicans have been loath to use. Uh, Robin, Trump is clearly intent, as Trump always is, uh, intent on brazening this out. He last night attended in West Virginia one of his semi-regular pep rallies full of hooting yokels and uh, gave an entrancingly deranged speech, quite a lot of it about turkeys, uh, as his mother used to cook them. Uh, He has been tweeting today both angrily and actually semi-amusingly. I think the one about Michael Cohen and anyone looking for a good lawyer it's kind of funny by Trump standards. It, I, it was quite. It was. Quite I funny. will give him a certain measure of credit where it's due. Um, 
is that really going to work? I mean, it's going to work, obviously, with the people for whom he could do literally no wrong, but really, is this going to work at this point? The thing one has to remember, I think, about Donald Trump is that whatever he does and whatever is alleged, there will be a group of American voters who will stick by him no matter what. Um, I was just reading earlier today that the day before Richard Nixon resigned... Uh, over the Watergate business. He still was about 25% in the polls. There are some people who will stick by their man no matter what. But I, I picked up a copy of the London Evening Paper on my way in here just now, and the front page says, Spectre of Impeachment Looms. That's going it a bit. I mean, as Jacob was saying, there are a few more hurdles to, uh, to be overcome. And even if the Democrats regain the House of Representatives, let's not forget the House of Representatives voted to impeach President Clinton. It's the Senate which actually has the vote on whether the man is impeached. And I don't think anybody at the moment is predicting that the Democrats are going to get control of the Senate in November. So there's a way to go. Indeed, it's, there is. Well, it's it's possible. Let me just pick up very briefly yeah. on that. It's possible that the Democrats will take back the Senate, but they okay. don't need to take it back. They need 67 votes. And there's no, because of the way Senate elections work, because only a third of the Senate's up at any given time, there's no mathematical scenario where they end up even close to that. So they would need at least 15 Republicans to come alongside. Um, Jacob, I am, I am struck uh, since yesterday afternoon's or late last night shenanigans, UK Times uh, shenanigans, uh, by Trump's differentiating response to the two cases. He seems clearly to have dumped Cohen under the bus, uh, and indeed vice versa. Cohen's lawyer is saying that Cohen will not seek and indeed does not want a pardon from Donald Trump, and that Cohen, furthermore, is perfectly happy to cooperate with the Russia inquiry. But he's sticking by Manafort, who seems a clearer link to Russia uh, than Cohen does. Why is he still sticking up for Manafort? And is he trying to prepare public opinion for a pardon of Manafort? Let me put a pin in the pardon question and talk about the divergent responses, because I think it's a reflection on Trump's view of loyalty, which is a one-way street. Manafort mm. has not given any indication, for whatever reason, whether he expects a pardon or whether there are things that he fears more in the world than Robert Mueller, Manafort has given no indication of cooperation. He has been, as far as anyone outside has been able to tell, a brick wall. And Trump appreciates that, and he's willing to kind of dangle the possibility of a pardon, whether or not he's seriously considering it. Cohen, on the other hand, a younger man with a family facing significant time in jail, potentially more legal liability, although both are in a lot of trouble, let's be clear, mm. um, gave some indication that he might flip and Trump turned on him. And Cohen has then in turn turned on Trump. There's no possibility of Cohen getting a pardon there. I think that in a way reflects really a significant misreading of the legal threat that each man poses because – and to be clear, we don't know what's at the center of the Russia investigation. We know about a lot of things. We know the the, the Trump Tower meeting with Donald Jr. and all that stuff. Um, but we don't know whether there is a legally chargeable crime at the heart that would impact Donald Trump Sr., the president, at the heart of the Russia investigation. Manafort may or may not be able to do Trump in. Cohen, it seems, probably can with these campaign finance violations. So by throwing Cohen under the bus and protecting Manafort, Trump may be not assessing the risks correctly. I just want to come in on that word you used, loyalty, because I do think that is the key. I mean, anybody who's watched The Godfather, anybody who watched The Sopranos will recognize this pattern of behavior. Loyalty is all. 
Trump expects 100% loyalty. After all, what was the whole James Comey dismissal about? Comey wouldn't pledge loyalty to Trump the man. And one of the most interesting things that's come out in the last couple of days is that the current White House counsel has let it be known that he regards his job as representing the interests of the office of the presidency, not the current holder of that office. That in itself, in time, could turn out to be very significant. Um, Jacob, just a final thought on this before we move on, because this is a story that clearly is going to run and run. And this is just my own pet theory I'm taking for a walk here. Is it possible, given what we know of Donald Trump and what we know of his understanding of or interest in how things actually work, that he just genuinely doesn't understand what he's supposed to have done wrong? I think that's entirely possible. We've seen Trump in the past give indications that, for example, he doesn't understand that the Justice Department is institutionally independent. He doesn't understand that he can't order investigations to start and stop. Those those are just aspects. I mean, he has a very authoritarian view of how political power work and doesn't really seem to understand the nuances of how political power in a, a sort of multi-branch government like the U.S. does. Now, he's had lots of time to learn. Has he picked up some of it? Maybe a little bit, but not to the extent that you would maybe expect a president nearly two years into his term. Don't you think he came into this believing that sitting in the White House was going to be not really any different from running his own family company. He was going to be the man in charge. What he said went, he'd be allowed to do whatever he thought was best for his and his family's interests. And he simply doesn't get that it ain't the same. He is running a constitutional democracy and there are rules. Uh, well, indeed. Uh, but we will, of course, be talking more about this as more information uh, emerges in coming days. Uh, for the moment, though, we will move on. And it does remain to be seen whether yesterday's circus will have any measurable impact on Americans' approval of their president. Almost certainly on past form, not. However, we have learned something this week, thanks to Gallup, of what Americans think of a cohort of foreign leaders. It is, on balance, pretty good news for Justin Trudeau of Canada and Theresa May of the United Kingdom, though this brought broadcaster for one would be intrigued to meet one of the 6% of Americans professing a favourable view of Kim Jong-un. What were the odds of Gallup's pollster getting put through to the Oval Office? Um, Robin, which of these results leap out at you? I'm going to be honest about this. I'm a bit underwhelmed by all of these results because I think the truth is that the vast majority of people, both in America and elsewhere, aren't very interested in other people's political leaders. I am staggered to discover that Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, gets a relatively good favourability rating from American voters. What on earth do they know about Theresa May? <laughs> I mean, what what is it about her that has impinged on their consciousness to give them a good uh, to give them a good view of her? Um, it, it's always been true, I think, that most political leaders are more popular overseas than there are they are among their own constituents. I mean, I remember in my own political lifetime, Margaret Thatcher, for example, even when she was going down the drain here, was still one of the world's most popular leaders overseas, even when she wasn't. Going back even further, Winston Churchill was thrown out by the British electors in 1945 after he'd just led a coalition to win the Second World War. I I can remember travelling in Eastern Europe in the early 1990s and failing to find anybody with an unkind word for Margaret Thatcher. Exactly, exactly. They they were massive, massive fans. And that was, of course, shortly after she was forced from office by her own party in the UK. Um, Jacob, I I was quite... Are you surprised, uh, as an American, one way or the other, uh, by the 
findings of this poll that 22% of Americans have never heard of Benjamin Netanyahu and 25% have never heard of Angela Merkel. I, I think I'm surprised in both directions respectively by those. I would have assumed that Netanyahu had greater brand recognition. I am deeply sceptical that 75% of Americans could name the Chancellor of Germany. I think 75% of Americans are aware that there is someone named Angela Merkel who holds a political position of power somewhere in Europe. (laughs) I'm not sure all 75% of those could answer the question, who is the current Chancellor of Germany with Angela Merkel? Um, And I wouldn't guess sort of where the percentage there lies. I am a little bit surprised. 22% of Americans not knowing Benjamin Netanyahu, who is not only one of the world's most longstanding leaders, but someone who has made, who spent significant amounts of time in the U.S. when he was growing up, who speaks with nearly unaccented American English, who has spent an enormous amount of time cultivating uh, a political following and a political base of support in the U.S. So that number surprises me a little bit. In general terms, though, I think, I mean, as Robin said, the the most people don't think deeply about other countries' leaders, whether you're talking about Americans or Brits or Germans or any other nationality. You know, you, you, you don't really disaggregate your view of a country broadly. The British prime minister is probably always going to do fairly well with America. Because it's the British prime minister. Because it's the British yeah. prime minister. And, you know, fond images of Hugh Grant and Love Actually are kind of <laughs> just, just, just sort of work into that, you know, all, all that stuff. Just but you kind know what, of what, what, what did strike me about these results? They were like a sort of mirror image of how Donald Trump regards overseas leaders. The people whom he speaks most highly of, Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, come at the bottom of the list. Uh, The one man whom he is really rude about, Justin Trudeau of Canada, comes top of the list. So he seems to be, if we take these poll results at face value, which, as I say, I'm a wee bit hesitant to do, um, the president's out of sync with his voters. Well, then, of course, Jacob, we look at the split by party identification, which reveal, as literally everything seems to in America now, an extraordinary division between those identifying as Republicans and those identifying as Democrats. Um, again, they're, they're re- some of them are unsurprising. 30% of Republicans approve of Justin Trudeau, as against 67% of Democrats. And again, you kind of have to wonder what those 33% of Democrats Democrats who don't like Justin Trudeau were upset about. Um, but 8% of Republicans approve of Kim Jong-un, uh, while 2% of Democrats do. So Kim Jong-un is four times more popular with Republicans than with Democrats. Vladimir Putin polling at 27% among Republicans, 4% among Democrats. Jacob, what the what has happened to the Republican Party? <laughs> uh, that's a much longer answer than I, I have time for. I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, the, the Kim Jong-un stuff, while entertaining, I, I don't think there are enough sort of old-time socialist international types left in the U.S. to account for even that. I think that's in some ways a combination of a couple of old Maoists and some pranksters and trolls and a few people who didn't know who he was but or, didn't, or, or, didn't or want thought, to be caught out. Or and thought just, Team America was a documentary. Or, or, or had seen the interview. I mean, there have got to be at least five people who did that. Um, <laughs> but the, the Putin one is interesting because there was, even predating Trump, there was a strain on the right in the U.S. that sees Putin as a sort of strong ethno-nationalist leader who's pro-gun in their view of the world. Actually, Russian gun control laws are much stricter, but another thing that 
I don't have time to talk about, unfortunately. <laughs> but there's this perception of Putin as sort of the, the ideal type right-wing strong leader. And that was a, a strain that Trump picked up on and has magnified, but is not something that he created from scratch. Uh, extraordinary cross-party support for Theresa May, Robin. 48% of Republicans, 54% of Democrats with a favourable impression yeah. of the United Kingdom's Conservative Prime Minister. Well, it, it, it's nice to give her something to clutch to her bosom as she sleeps at night. Um, yeah, she's, she's done nothing to upset Americans. She has said nice things about Donald Trump. She's the leader of a country about which most Americans have generally quite warm feelings. Um, she's, uh, she's, she's a sort of bland leader about whom I suspect they don't know a great deal. If you ask them, what is Theresa May's position on free trade? What is Theresa May's position on NATO or any of the other things? They probably know. Perhaps they know that she's in favour of Britain leaving the EU. Now, she wasn't, of course, before the referendum. We'll leave that alone. Um, I, I she's done nothing to upset them. Do, do either of you have a favourable view of a foreign leader that may be in excess of their own people? <laughs> I'm a Justin Trudeau man. <laughs> I'm heading for Canada. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a pass on that one. <laughs> uh, probably very sensible. I, I was kind of hoping one of you would name the current Australian Prime Minister, which would have teed us up nicely uh, for the next item, but that is a, a trick you both missed. Robin, and you a professional broadcaster. Yeah, I know. That open I, goal was right there. Why should there. I give you gifts? Right <laughs> there, right there was the open goal, and straight into row K you put it. We are going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Robin Lustig and Jacob Parakilis. Coming up next, Australia does prepare, yes, to defenestrate yet another Prime Minister. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You're back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Robin Lustig and Jacob Parakilis. To Australia now, where, again, large numbers of my fellow citizens are hiding beneath tables, lights off, curtains drawn, for fear that they may be prevailed upon to have a crack at being Prime Minister. The revolving door on the lodge in Canberra has been given another spin this week, and while Malcolm Turnbull remains in residence as we go to air, it seems certain that his own party will make another attempt to eject him fairly imminently, possibly within hours. Should Turnbull be replaced, the new Prime Minister will be Australia's fifth this decade. Sixth, if you count Kevin Rudd's two goes at it. Um, Robin, from a half a world away, uh, regarding Australia, as people I'm sure do, as a prosperous, orderly, civilised, well-run uh, 
all the good things country. How daft does all this political infighting and intrigue look? I realise that is a leading question. It is a leading question and pretty daft is the short <laughs> answer, um, but not uniquely daft. Um, I mean, not. Australia is very much in, in, in the current groove of modern democracies, it seems to me. Um, but but uh, I used to work in Italy at one time when they, there was a phrase, uh, revolving door governments, because Indeed. prime ministers came and went. And it seems to me Australia has picked this up. I know there's quite a large Italian community in Australia and possibly the infection has spread. Um, it is remarkable, isn't it? I mean, I'd never thought of Australia as a banana republic and, and banana republics are now no longer... We are uh, technically a banana constitutional monarchy. A banana constitutional... Well, okay. Ah, okay, well, I'll take that on board. No, it, <laughs> it, it is pretty daft, but, but what, what seems to be going on is that, as in many other countries, including, indeed, the one from which we speak, uh, political parties are under strain and they're falling to bits and the broad church... As Harold Wilson used to describe the British Labour Party, is proving to be a bit too broad and the different wings of different parties just don't seem to be able to agree on anything anymore. See, I, I have a theory about Australia, which is, of course, my, my home country where I do still spend uh, a reasonable amount of time. And it is my theory, Jacob, which I'm shamelessly going to impose uh, on the panel, specifically you. And my theory is basically that, as, as we discussed, Australia is a... I mean, it works. It's fine. Um... I think our politicians are bored. I, I genuinely think they have got to the point they, they have nothing to do, uh, and so they do this. That that is that is my genuine suspicion. I think. Look, political scientists spend a lot of time on the measures of partisan identification and polarization and information asymmetry and uh, representation of certain interest groups. I think there's not very much consideration of sort of sub-rosa cultural calculus in how politicians choose to act. And I'm I'm not specifically speaking about Australia here. I'm, I'm, I'm broadening this because Australia is, I think, typical, as you say, of a number of relatively functional, relatively prosperous, frankly, generally quite boring, at least in terms of domestic politics, countries where things just go haywire, where, where parties just don't work suddenly. And, and that's partly a reflection of those things that political scientists measure. But I think it's also a reflection of just at some level, there's a degree of entropy in political systems. We build systems and they either err on the side of allowing uh, prime ministers to be defenestrated by a sufficient minority of their party, or we build systems that are, lean towards authoritarian and give a certain individual power for an amount of time that can't be that, that can't be sort of foreshortened except by extreme constitutional measures. And that's – neither of those is perfect. No one has found the perfect balance yet. Or, or is, is, is it possible, Robin, and I am making this up as I go, that just as politicians or political classes can grow bored, uh, the same becomes true of, of entire countries. I think, in fact, this is what Charles de Gaulle famously blamed for, for the events of May 1968. France, he said, is bored, which I'm sure sounded more magnificently dismissive in French, which I, I do not speak. But is it possible that you could argue that sort of populist eruptions like, for example, Brexit and Trump are just a function of basically prosperous, well-off, slightly complacent people just thinking, I'm, I'm bored, I want to see no, what happens no, if I press I, this I, button? No, I don't. I, I don't think that's it at all. In fact, I, th there, was, there was a concept 20 or 25 years ago, I think, the complacent society, and, and this, it all kind of came around the time of the end of history and this general idea that mature democracies had generally, as you say, satisfied... Uh, complacent electorates. I don't think that's what's going on. And if you, if you are right that Australian politicians are bored because they can't think of anything to do, then that is shameful. <laughs> because what Australia could and should be doing 
saying is taking the lead in dealing with climate change. Australia has these enormous mineral oh, we've resources. We've tried that a few times. Yeah, well, and, and indeed it's part of what's going on again now, as I understand it, is a it row over energy and climate policy. But, you know, Australia could be in the forefront of all this, and Australia's politicians could be in the forefront of this. And if they're really bored, if you're right, and if they can't think of anything useful to do except keep stabbing each other both in the front and in the back, then uh, shame on them. Uh, We will doubtless have more on that story as it unfolds over coming days as well. But we will move on finally tonight, uh, and despite the mountainous evidence by now assembled that asking the general public for their opinions is always a terrible idea, the city burgers of Brussels have done it anyway, conducting a competition to rename 28 streets and squares. We can, at the very least, be grateful that, as things stand, no Bruxelles will be obliged to get new stationery printed, giving their address as Streety McStreet, face. Instead, as if in collective defiance of the well-loved pub game, they have chosen the names of actual famous Belgians. Um, Jacob, do you, do you like the new names? Yeah, they're whimsical. I think they're kind of fun. I mean, I, I, I think government buildings generally should have quite portentous names. I think warships should generally have quite serious names. <laughs> I think roads you can have a bit of fun with. And from personal... I mean, I used to live in, in Arlington, Virginia. And Arlington is... Culturally, Washington, D.C., in fact, it was part of Washington, D.C. until about 1840, um, but it's in Virginia. And so this was 2007, 2008. I lived at the intersection of not one but two streets named the Jefferson Davis Highway. Jefferson Davis, of course, being the president of the Confederacy. Um, Those streets have only been renamed in the last couple of years. So you can get very, very badly wrong naming streets after long-dead politicians. Well, I, mean, this, 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 I think whimsy is great. <laughs> this, 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 this does happen a lot, of, as you will know, Robin, in places where there has been a political tumult and upheaval. These street signs get taken down and replaced with new ones. Uh, we are no longer at war with Eurasia uh, and so forth. There, I, but they, they can also be celebratory. There is, of course, a Bill Clinton Boulevard in Pristina uh, in Kosovo, another street I think I'm right in saying named after Tony Blair. Um, my favourite historical fact possibly of all time uh, pertains to the renaming of a street, which is the street on which the British Embassy in Tehran sits. Robin knows this story. It was on Winston Churchill Street in Tehran in 1981. It's a great pub quiz question if you phrase it like this, that the Islamic government of Iran renamed it after which other member of the House of Commons? It was, of course, the IRA hunger striker Bobby, Bobby Sands, Sands right, uh, and, it and it is still Bobby Sands Street. Though I think the British Embassy moved the entrance around the corner, <laughs> so they didn't have to put that, that on their stationery. Um, Robin, are you are you in favour of this sort of municipal well, I, renaming? I, well, I'm very much in favour of whimsical street names. But, you know, London is way ahead of the rest of the world on this. London has the best whimsical street names, as far as I know, of any city in the world. And many of them are ancient. I mean, for example, would you not love to live in Shoulder of Mutton Alley? It exists. It's in East London. Uh, you might be less keen to live in Trump Street which also <laughs> exists here in London. My favourite one, not very far from where I live, in fact, in North London, is a street called Crooked Usage. I'd love to live crooked on Crooked Usage. I would love to live on Crooked a, Usage. A usage you may or may not know in Anglo-Saxon times was a little grass strip that separated two fields. So that's what a Crooked Usage can was. You, can you imagine trying to get a parcel delivered to, yeah, crooked, <laughs> to crooked Usage? I, I also appreciate London street names in general. It does bother me slightly on a patriotic basis that America Street is an alley off of Southwark Road <laughs> with no particular distinguishing characteristics. It does feel like a bit of a slap in the face. Are, are there any streets that either of you would desperately like to rename? 
or should be renamed. Should be renamed. There are some quite boring ones. I hate the fact that too many British towns have a high street, just like American towns have Main Street. I mean, it just shows a lack of imagination. I think American towns, you know, with Third Street, Fourth Street, Fifth Street, it's very useful if you're from out of town. But again, it, it shows a lack of emotion. I love the medieval names in London. Do you know the Ministry of Justice in London is in Petit France? It as is. in Petit France, which is where the Huguenot refugees used to live. What a perfect place for the Ministry of Justice to be. My favourite British street name, and an, Amer- an American may struggle to guess this, Robin, you might get there. This is a real thing that did happen. It's in it's in South Yorkshire. Uh, there was a new extension to a suburb being planned, and there's, so there was going to be a street uh, with a police station on it. And they gave the street with a police station on it a placeholder name, uh, but the police decided they liked it, so they kept it. Can you guess the name of that street? No, I can't. It is Letsby Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> that is genius. That, that, is genius. that took me a second, but that's, that's quite good. No, that, 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 <laughs> but, that, I, but I think ceci n'est pas... Une rue is for the Belgians would be a very good surreal Belgian tribute to Magritte uh, as, as a street name, just to take the whole thing to the lengths of absurdity. And 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 as an American and therefore a Democrat, Jacob, the, the basically the idea of opening this this kind of thing up to the public. Do you need to put safeguards in place to stop people choosing something? I think, ludicrous. I think the idea of having an open submission, you are going to end up with Rody McRoadface. But <laughs> I think there are ways to ways to do it that are that are manageable. I think you can solicit recommendations from a broad range of people and then provide a choice of vetted names. I think that's probably the way to do it, rather than just having a any old 4chan poster can come in and insert various ethnic slurs and uh, obscure internet jokes in and those can win. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's episode of Radio Showy McRadio Showface. Uh, Robin Lustig and Jacob Parakilis, thank you both very much for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Carlotta Rebello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Julia Webster. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's the Entrepreneurs. There's more on the day's main stories and it's a pretty big day for them on the daily at 2200. I'm back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow 1800 London. For now, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs>